Well, we've all received news at one time or another. Uh, sometimes it's bad news. I remember getting my first exam back in uh, a major freshman class at Grove City College and seeing the big D-plus at the top. That was bad news. And the second exam was also bad news, which was also a D-plus. Sometimes we receive irrelevant news. Celebrity news, I find to be irrelevant. Uh, Headlines like Big Bang Theory star Kunal Niyar gets the sweetest kiss from his dog. I kid you not, that's an actual headline. Or Bobby Flay naps with Cat Nacho. See the cute pic. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Uh, Sometimes we receive good news. It was good news for me to hear that Jerusalem Church wanted me to be their pastor. That's good news. Sometimes we receive good news. And sometimes we receive irrelevant news. And sometimes we receive bad news. We all have received news. And depending on where you stand in relation to that news, it may be bad news, irrelevant news, or good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. None better. But it's obvious that not everyone thinks that Jesus is good news. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens said that the teachings of Christianity were, quote, immoral teachings that have done and continue to inflict untold moral and physical harm on our species, end quote. Some people actually find Jesus Christ bad news. Others find the gospel irrelevant news. Look at our culture. Uh, There are innumerable examples of people trivializing and underestimating the gospel by simply giving Jesus little to no thought at all. It's obvious that they're content without him. And then there are people who eat, sleep, and breathe the gospel. It is their lifeblood. They know that they they can't survive without it. So it's really, really good news for them. What about you? I hope you find the gospel the best of news. Uh, here's, here's where we're going in this three-part series. Why the gospel is good news. Why the gospel is true news. And why the gospel is helpful news. Today we tackle why the gospel is good news. And I have three simple goals. Number one, that you hear a simple explanation of the gospel. Uh, Number two, that you would understand why the gospel is supremely good news. And number three, that you would enjoy the gospel more. Before I give you my simple explanation of the gospel, I want to give you a taste of where the gospel ends, the end before the beginning. Sometimes movie directors uh, start you at the end of the plot, and then they go back to the beginning, and they develop the story which takes you to the end once again, and then all the pieces fall together. It can be a very, very effective technique. What is the ultimate end of the gospel? If you win an all-expense-paid trip to some luxurious destination, the end of receiving that news is enjoying an amazing trip with your friends. So what about the gospel? Here's a taste of the end. From Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Listen closely. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's an incredible picture of heaven. And we want that life. That, that's the perfect life. That's an attractive life. But at the center of those verses lies a pleasure from which all the other pleasures of, of those verses Derive, listen again to what God said from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Where does the gospel end? Life with God. Life with God. That is the apex of of the gospel, life with God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it ends with God making all his children as happy as they can be in the glory of his presence forever. That's the long and short of it. You can see in Revelation 21 verse 8 that the road opposite the gospel leads to a miserable and agonizing eternal existence. But the gospel is the road to a thrilling eternal life with God. That is the end. Now the beginning. Defining the gospel. The word gospel, in the most generic sense, means good news. Good news. You're going to Hershey Park for the day. That's gospel. That's good news. You become a grandparent... That's gospel. That's, that's good news. In ancient times, gospel was used to describe a military victory, news of the military victory. When the enemy surrendered, a herald would either sail or ride or run back to the city to proclaim the good news of triumph, of conquest, of victory. It was gospel when America heard that Nazi Germany surrendered. Celebrations broke out on city streets. So in the most generic sense, gospel means good news that brings great joy and celebration. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, which appears 76 times in the New Testament, however, not in the generic sense. Gospel in the New Testament refers to a specific, well-defined 
and all-important news. Here's how Dr. Brian Chappell summarizes the gospel. He writes this, gospel simply means good news. The Bible uses the term to refer to the message that God has fulfilled His promise to send a Savior to rescue broken people, restore creation's glory, and rule over all with compassion and justice. That's why a good summary of the gospel is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, end of quote. Uh, Here's Dr. Michael Horton's take on the gospel. Gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. End of quote. So to put it succinctly, the gospel is the good news of God's eternal plan to save sinners by His grace through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, alone. So then, the gospel is not something that you do, but rather something that has been done for you. It is not social justice. It is not activism. It is not working hard to change the world and to make a difference, as some people would have us believe. Before we zoom in closer, let me just say that there is only one gospel. So we must get it right. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul told the Galatian church this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul makes several really important points here. There is only one gospel. Deserting Christ is equivalent to turning to a different gospel, which means Jesus is the only gospel, the one true gospel, and news that opposes Christ and all that he is, is not good news at all. The one gospel of Jesus Christ is precise, it's well-defined, it's good news. Some will add to it, some will take away from it, some will modify it, but as soon as the true gospel of Jesus Christ is altered, it ceases to be the gospel. Now, I want to explain the gospel in simple terms, plain and simple language. Yet, there are, the, there are profound realities inside of the gospel that deserve careful attention. And I'm only able to address a few. It's, it's a little bit of a daunting task to try to do what I'm what I'm doing here. My aim is to keep it simple, but yet sufficient. Now, I use a a simple and memorable outline uh, that I borrowed from Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, to, to present the gospel. And it goes like this. God, man, Jesus, response. God, man, Jesus, response. Say that with me. God, man, Jesus, response. Once more, God, man, Jesus, response. So let's explain the gospel. We begin with God. 
Now, as you can imagine, it's difficult to clearly and concisely summarize an infinite being, an infinite God. How does one do that? Well, I certainly don't want to reduce God in any way, uh, but I've zoomed in on six key truths about him. God is one, God is triune, God is creator, God is holy, God is righteous, God is good. Number one, God is one. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Bible repeatedly refers to God in the singular and uses phrases like, you are the Lord, you alone, or besides me, there is no God, or the Lord is God, there is none other besides him. Number two, God is triune. I like the Westminster Shorter Catechism on this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. There is only one true and living God. Yet there are three distinct persons in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is distinct, yet each is fully God, equal in power and glory. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one In Matthew 3, each person of the Trinity is present at the baptism of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right there is the Trinity. The Trinity reveals that God is relational apart from any created creature. The Father, Son, and Spirit exist in perfect, loving, united, and eternal fellowship. Number three, God is holy. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, the one seraph called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. To say that God is holy is to say He is separate from everything else. In a class of his own, he is morally pure and unique. God's holiness is the sum total of his divine perfections. His holiness is his exceptionality or extraordinariness. There is God and then there is everything else that is not God. And God is infinitely different and outstanding from everything else that is not God. That is his holiness. Number four, God is righteous. In other words, God is morally perfect, faultless, and eternally and divinely just, fair, and right. There is no evil, darkness, or guilt within God, nor can he tolerate evil. He never does wrong, but only what is right and just. Psalm 119, verses 137, 138, and 142 say this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge. 
Because of the perfect righteousness of God, he stands as supreme magistrate over all things. He neither conforms or answers to any law outside of himself, for his righteousness is the highest standard. Number five, God is good. Psalm 106 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God is desirable, supremely desirable, supremely beautiful, supremely pleasing. He is magnificent in every way. All that God is and does is entirely good. Number six, God is creator. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe was designed and fashioned by God. John 1, verses 1 through 3 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. As creator, God is before all things. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is the supreme intelligence, designer, cause, and don't miss this one, purpose of the universe. Now, on to man. God created everything for his own glory. The crown jewel of his creation is humanity, whom he made in his image and after his likeness. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Every human being, male or female, bears the image of God and is created beautiful intelligent, rational, emotional, and for the purpose of enjoying God for the glory of God. Adam and Eve were created without sin. Therefore, they were morally innocent. God gave them dominion over creation as his vice regents, a very important position. He gave them marriage, which is amazing. He gave them the promise of children, which amazing, and gave them meaningful work in an incredible garden with wonderful pleasures. Most of all, he gave them himself to enjoy. So the purpose of humanity is clear. In case you're wondering why you exist, well, you don't have to wonder anymore, I'm going to tell you, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is why you were made. God also lovingly gave Adam and Eve a good law. Sometimes we get in our minds that law might not be good. It's trying to take something from me. No, he gave them a good law to protect their happiness and to protect their life. And he made his law very clear. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, which meant both a physical and a spiritual death. Then everything changed. The whole thing was messed up. When in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disregarded God's good law and ate from the forbidden tree. Immediately, at that moment, Adam and Eve lost their moral innocence. 
They became guilty of infinite rebellion against God. And the image of God in them was now distorted. It was veiled. It was harder to see. Afterwards, as Genesis 6, 5 says, every intention of the thoughts of man's hearts was only evil continually. Their breach of God's law introduced death and destruction and sin into the world, which explains all the problems in the world. Every problem that you have ever had can be linked directly to that sin, including death itself. Adam was humanity's representative. All humanity was in Adam at that moment. We were in Adam at that moment, as 1 Corinthians 15.22 teaches. Therefore, all humanity is born in sin, guilty before God. The sins they commit along the way, that only adds and heaps on guilt, more and more guilt accumulated along the way. As Romans 3 teaches, everyone is under sin, none is righteous, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good. And verse 23 totally nails it and is entirely right, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is good, he must condemn All those who deviate from his perfect law in any way. If he would not condemn it, he would cease to be good. He would cease to be righteous. He would cease to be holy. He must judge fairly. Without moral perfection, man remains in the most perilous condition. Entirely sinful, guilty, alienated from, and condemned by God. But in Genesis 3:15, God proclaimed the gospel, a promise of a savior. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. An offspring would rise from humanity. And crush the head of the serpent. So the good news is not man rescuing himself by his own good attempts or good intentions or good efforts. There is nothing humanity can do to rescue itself from the coming justice of God. Now comes the gospel. God, man, Jesus. Jesus. Because God is loving, compassionate, and kind, he chose to provide salvation through his son who would crush the head of the serpent. The only hope of salvation from sin, guilt, death, and hell is God making a way. And the good news is God has made a way through Jesus The Apostles' Creed is a good summary. We say that sometimes here. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, 
His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose from the dead. He descended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son and Word of God in human flesh. He is one person with two distinct natures, one human and one divine. He is uniquely qualified as Savior. Now, what is often overlooked by Christians as they understand the gospel is that before Jesus died for sinners, he lived a perfect life of righteousness Four sinners, Adam and all humanity rebelled. They did it wrong. They failed. They said, I'm not going your way, God. I'm going my own way. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed. He did it all right and succeeded to remain sinless. Hebrews 4 uh, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. 1 John 3.5 says in him there is no sin. That was from two of his best friends. Jesus fulfilled the law. Then he went to the cross as the spotless, pure sacrifice for sin. He is a sufficient and acceptable sacrifice. God accepts him as a sacrifice because of his righteousness and perfection. When Christ Jesus was crucified, all the sins of God's elect were thrown onto Jesus. All the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, and his death satisfied the penalty of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 nails it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was buried in the tomb three days later by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb alive to reveal himself to hundreds of eyewitnesses. Not 12 little guys that are delusional, hundreds of people at one time. He lives today victorious over sin, Satan, hell, death, and the grave. His resurrection paved the way for sinners to be made righteous, to live a new life, to have a fresh start and be raised to eternal life in the end. 1 Corinthians 15 condenses this good news. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me, appeared. 
Scripture also teaches that Jesus ascended to heaven, now sits at God's right hand in power and authority and glory, and one day he will return as king and judge to finally conquer all his enemies, all his people's enemies, and to escort all of God's elect to their eternal delight in God. Friends, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. You you must know his divinity, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return to understand that he is good news. Without knowledge of him, there is no knowledge of God and no knowledge of eternal life. Jesus is good news because he is the only means which God has provided to gain eternal life with God. The only means. There is no other path. You won't find it. It's him or perish. Jesus is not bad news. He's not irrelevant news. He's good news, which brings joy and celebration. Now, how should we respond to the good news? What what do you do with it? Now we've heard it. What do we do? God, man, Jesus, response, response. How someone responds to the gospel determines whether they spend eternity enjoying the glory of God or suffering beneath the justice of God. This is very important that you understand how to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. God commands, not suggests, He commands people to respond in two simple ways, which are two sides of the same coin. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Or you could say it like this, turn from your sins and believe in the gospel. The words of Jesus are plain and simple. Mark 1 Verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's straight from Jesus' mouth. How should we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? We must turn away from our sin with disgust. We must forsake our sin with revulsion. Repentance is a change of attitude. It is a change of heart, a change of life. We must do a, a complete 180 from sin to God, which brings us to faith, the other side of the coin. A turn from sin is a turn to God. To truly believe the gospel is to fully Trust in the gospel. Complete trust is needed. True transformation comes through total trust in the gospel. True transformation, like inside out, like heart transformation, true transformation comes through total, all-out trust in the gospel. And Romans 3.28 tells us that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If we could just get that into our heads, 
It's not about you and me doing it right to be accepted by God. That's not the gospel. That sounds like bad news for me. Jonathan, be perfect and God will accept you. I can't be perfect. Can you? That's not good news. Well, if I just let my good works outweigh my bad words, that's not good news. That's terrible news. Salvation is not earned by merit. It is received entirely as a gift by grace through faith. So true salvation comes through an admission of the lack of righteousness. If you're truly saved, you're a person that says, I'm messed up. I'm, I don't have it together. I'm unrighteous. I'm unholy. I am wicked. I am evil to the core. Now you're starting to sound like a Christian. True salvation comes through an admission of the lack of righteousness and a commitment to forsake sin alongside of a confidence in the sufficiency of Christ to save by his righteousness and sacrifice alone. No one can be saved apart from receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness. And his righteousness is received by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation comes not when someone works really hard so that they, they accumulate enough good work so that they can finally please God because I've been good enough for you. I've won your approval, God. No, but when they relinquish all self confidence and put all their trust in the righteousness of Christ. Then they are justified because God only accepts perfect righteousness. Can you offer him perfect righteousness? No. Only one can, and his name is Jesus Christ. Dr. Brian Chappell writes, faith in Christ alone, a forsaking of the self as the basis of divine approval is the effect God works in our hearts as he uses all our desperations and disappointments to bring us to complete dependence on him. Faith, therefore, is complete dependence on Jesus Christ. A dependence wrought by God alone. And it is through texts like Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9, and Galatians 5, verse 22, and John 3, verse 27, and Acts 11, verse 18, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, that we realize that repentance and faith are both gifts from God. He gives them. That's why we have them. Therefore, salvation is entirely God's sovereign and free grace from beginning to end. We contribute absolutely nothing to our justification. Nothing. You bring nothing to the table. God brings it all, and he lavishes his grace upon you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The good news is not that we have done something to prompt the great favor of God upon us, but that God, on his own initiative, sought to freely give us his good favor through the gospel. My friends, the gospel should never be reduced to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. That's not even a good summary of the gospel. In fact, the love of God, if you think about it, makes no sense to a person who doesn't realize they are enemies of God 
and deserving of his divine justice. The love of God through Christ refreshes the soul when the whole story is told. And you can see why the love of God is actually awesome and spectacular. Otherwise, it just doesn't. Well, why do I need that? I'm fine as I am. God, man, Jesus, response. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's memorable. It's a great tool for evangelism. This is what I use to share the gospel. God, man, Jesus, response. And I just go through the outline and try to nail it the best I can with, with uh, hopefully a scriptural perspective. So I've explained it to you in simple terms. But perhaps Romans 5, 8 through 11, another angle at it, can solidify it all for us again. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That is the best news of all. You're not going to hear something better than what I've just told you. It is Mind-blowing. So let's close with this. Enjoying the gospel. The gospel is supremely good news because it ends with living with God who makes his children as happy as they can be in himself forever. God is the good news. So if the eternal presence of God makes the news good then Psalm 1611 should be enjoyed by us as our greatest good. This should just thrill our souls. Listen to this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Living in the light of the glory of God forever is the definition of the fullness of joy. The presence of God. Where would I be without a quick quote from John Piper? (laughs) John Piper, a man, said it like this. When I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel without which no other gifts would be good is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. Right there is what the gospel is all about. Our everlasting enjoyment of God. 
Every aspect of the gospel, every deep and profound doctrine of the gospel gets us to that point, the everlasting enjoyment of God. See, you have to see and savor God to understand why He is the supreme good. So many people just are blind to the glory of God and they don't know what they are missing. They can't see His glory In the scripture, in creation, they ignore him and belittle him and prefer other things. And they don't know what joy is promised to them in seeing and savoring him in all of his splendor forever. If you think there is any good greater than God that exists outside of God, then the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be good news to you. You have something out there that is not connected to Him. You want that. So that is your greatest good. And then you won't understand. You won't see a need for the gospel which takes you to your greatest good. You're just going away from your greatest good. It will be bad news. It will be irrelevant news if you have something out there outside of God that you desire more than God. It will be bad news because it keeps you from what you really want. If this is the only way to God but you want this, then Jesus is going to be bad news because what he's saying is keeping you from what you really want. You won't like what he has to say. Or it will be irrelevant news because you're so enthralled with that other thing, that other good outside of God that you cannot see that you are settling for something infinitely less than a glorious God. So the gospel will just be irrelevant. I just don't need it. I'm I'm content to have this. My friends, Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news because he takes us from our misery. And I'll admit, sometimes this life doesn't feel like misery. Sometimes we're like, man, things are going great as it is. Now, some of you, deep suffering, you're like, yeah, misery. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who no, I'm, I think I've got a good thing going here. And they don't feel the misery that they're in. But the misery's coming. And so, Jesus is good news because he takes us from our misery, whether we know it or whether we don't, to God, in whom we find our eternal satisfaction and happiness. That's good news. That's good news. That's gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. God, I get overwhelmed by you. How am I going to tell people all about you? And to do it with biblical precision and accuracy, not forgetting anything. God, I fear forgetting something, something so central to the gospel. But I pray, God, that I that I've not done that. I pray that somehow I've covered all of the main points of goodness of the gospel. That 
that the people here today have heard a sufficient summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, there are some people here that likely have not trusted in Jesus Christ. They either find it bad news or irrelevant news. And I pray for them. I pray that this hits them like electricity and that they're able to believe, trust, put their full confidence in this message of Jesus. And I pray for those who have heard this so many times before that perhaps it has grown a little dull, a little stale, a little old. Maybe even it seems a little elementary. Your gospel is not elementary. It, it is our lifeblood for those who trust in it. So I pray that you encourage your people, those who do trust in the gospel, help them to see it as precious and good and amazing and powerful and effectual and helpful and glorious and splendid and beautiful. Just help them to see the beauty of Jesus. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us never to assume the gospel, but to preach it and teach it and breathe it and eat it and, and respond to it in the ways that you would have us. Oh God, would you use your great gospel, a clear and, and simple presentation of it, to transform us into the image of your glorious Son. All for your glory alone. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.